0: Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling and the first episode since I've moved into the world of MLOps. So we're sponsored by Cathcart Associates, as always, um, the technology recruitment experts. Um, And we've got a new sponsor, Fuzzy Labs, the open source MLOps um, enthusiasts and my new company. More on that later. Today on the show, I am buzzing to speak to Ed Shee, uh, Head of Developer Relations at Seldon. Seldon are a company committed to enabling some of the world's leading businesses accelerate their adoption of large-scale machine learning. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, hi, Liam. It's good to be on here. It's quite hard to do like a one-sentence pitch of Seldon. Like, I looked at some of the stuff that you guys use, but it's quite like you cover quite a lot in the machine learning kind of MLOps world. So, like, I didn't want to not do it justice by, like, focusing on one thing. Um, So we'll get into that. But yeah it's my first podcast back in a couple of months so you'll have to go easy on me yeah I was uh I was super impressed I was wondering where you'd got that one liner from because
1: I still haven't thought of a good one or been (laughs) able to nail it myself either you know I have this uh this like ongoing dilemma where like people who don't work in machine learning ask ask me what my company does and I'm sort of like ah we're we're an AI startup (laughs) and that's basically all I say unless they want to ask any more Um, And then people who are a bit techie have to kind of judge. I'm like, how much do you know? Because like, you know, if I tell you that we do like drift detection and explainability techniques, that means nothing unless you're a data scientist and who actually builds models. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's
0: weird, right? I still don't have a good elevator pitch. I think think yours was probably as good as any. Well, it was on your LinkedIn. I definitely stole most of it. But um, (laughs) yeah, no, my mom asked me what my new job was uh, when I moved to Fuzzy Labs. And before I could just tell her that like, I work in recruitment, it's all for techie people, but basically I find people jobs. And she was like, okay, I can get my head around that. And then she's like, what, what's the new job? And I was like, mom, there's no point. <laughs> and uh, there was, I've got, the guy's got me a t-shirt and on the back of it, it says something about like unleash your AI. And she was like, does AI mean artificial intelligence? And I was like, yep. Yeah. I was like, that's as far as we're going. I was like, there's, because yeah, there's no point in me going into too much detail about, I because sometimes I'll explain it to a techie person of like, Kind of like the mentality of DevOps and software engineering. But that's not going to fly with my retired teacher mum. She doesn't know what, yep. Devo- doesn't know what DevOps <laughs> is either. I've tried that one too. You know, um, my mum
1: will ask in great detail about my job and <laughs> pretends to be super interested. And then when someone else asks her, you know, what does Ed do? She goes, "Ah, oh, he works with computers.
0: <laughs> she's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> she's not, but she's clearly not taking anything else in either. No. Uh, yeah that's one of those things I mean MLOps we'll get into this as well but it is that kind of like new kind of emerging space within data science and kind of machine learning that yeah you've got to pitch it right because there's people that will understand it but you don't want to go too far into the specifics if they don't get the like I don't know like the gist of it the good thing for me is that I don't really get the technical side i'm not technical whatsoever so if people can explain what they do to me then they're onto a winner so we'll come back to that when we speak about selden but no we do we on the show we do a quick background see how everyone gets into this kind of weird and wonderful world of machine learning um i think i'm right in saying you did a mechanical engineering degree right uh yeah i did yeah i was um i i umdenard about whether i should do
1: computer science or engineering. And ultimately, it came down to the fact that, like, if I'd done computer science, I couldn't become a mechanical engineer. But if I did mechanical engineering, I could still go and work in IT. And so I did mechanical engineering, probably realized about halfway through that maybe I should have done computer science because it was much more interesting. So, you know, spent most of my final years specializing in things like robotics and um, computational modeling and stuff like that. Um, and and then, yeah, ended up working in, in IT as as predicted, right? So,
0: Oh, well hey, I went into plan, which is good. It's also a clever way of thinking about it. Like, don't wanna go too specialist in your degree just in case you wanna have another door open. Although if you knew what software development landscape looks like now, you probably would have jumped at the chance to do a computer science degree if you could kinda if you had hindsight. Yeah. Um, but it's all worked out. Um so yeah, I was gonna ask you how that led to kind of IBM and software engineering and technical work but you kind of mentioned there that it was it was already an interest right it just and and it took over a little bit of the degree anyway so that probably was a fairly obvious step
1: yeah so I I kind of you know I came out of uni and I knew I wanted to work in in IT and and more specifically in software and you know like anyone right just applied to grad schemes etc got got into IBM and then Uh, kind of pushed quite hard to try and get a role in in the software division because that was, you know, for me, where my interests lie and I didn't necessarily want to be, you know, selling servers and things like that. And then, and so I I started working on a a now very legacy set of products called Rational, which were like software development lifecycle tooling. As a tech specialist in that, it gave me a really good view of like software delivery lifecycle, you know, the, the kind of at the time right devops was just picking up as a movement so i kind of watched it grow and you know then was a part of that as it grew from just you know things like git and source code management to you know then it was automated testing and then it was automated deployments as well and um you know all sorts of tools that we've seen in that space like chef and ansible and puppet and so on really kind of rise to fame um and then i went to work as a a, a cloud and DevOps architect when we launched a cloud platform at IBM, um, which was really, really cool. Um, and actually one of, the, one of the things I still like to tell people is that we were the first cloud to, to support Kubernetes, right? No, no one knows that because <laughs> what happens is we supported it. And then like a month or two later, all the other clouds were like, oh, this is really good. We should do it too. And you know, obviously if you're Amazon or Google and you can throw hundreds of devs at a project, you also have the offering
0: very quickly. Yeah, um, but for a couple of months we were we were ahead of the curve that's cool and yeah when you joined IBM was their main business still that kind of server large scale kind of what people maybe view IBM as and then yeah you, as you said you kind of pushed that software DevOps space and kind of carved out a bit of a niche for yourself
1: yeah it was and, and probably to be honest still is like the bulk of IBM's work and revenue comes from large-scale legacy IT landscapes. You know, whether it's the management of them, you know, they deliver a lot of services as well. You know, things like our um, our MQ message broker, for example, is still used to underpin you know millions and millions of payment transactions every day, right? And and the banks that use them are so terrified of replacing that technology or turning it off that they just keep paying IBM and they keep updating it and we have to keep supporting it and so on. Um, so there's a lot of that. Uh, and it was, for me, it was like, that was great, but I, I wanted to work at the stuff, you know, at the forefront of technology, right? I wanted to work on containerization, on Kubernetes, on, you know, public cloud, right? Because that's where everyone's, well, at the time, I thought everyone was going to be deploying stuff and, you know, inevitably, right, as time has gone on, we've we've seen that that has been the case and, and now it's, Yeah, it's happening in the machine learning world too.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, And you made an interesting point there and I didn't really think about it before, but legacy sometimes got like a negative connotation in the market um, where people don't want to work on legacy stuff or like you assume legacy just means like out of date or whatever. But like sometimes like there's nothing wrong with it. Like if if IBM can process millions of payments using that system and it works, like you can see why there's like a kind of trepidation (laughs) to change.
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, still a, you know, yeah, very, very good reason people still buy mainframes from IBM, right? They're, you know, highly performant. They they do the job. They, you know, they there was this old saying that people used to have was no one ever got fired for buying IBM, right? Yeah. Because that was, you know, what they did was they built reliable technology and reliable software that works 100% of the time and guarantees uptime. and And I think as we move to to cloud and stateless microservices and everything being scalable and fault-tolerant and so on, actually the, the software engineering world doesn't need to be as robust because you know, if, if your application crashes, it doesn't really matter, right? You've probably got 10 different instances of it running. You've got an automated load balancer doing all the routing across it, so your users will never even notice. Yeah. If you only have one and it's running on one machine and it's doing something really critical like payments... You, you had better make sure that's all running properly.
0: Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, people probably have like, or people coming into the world of IT maybe have like a distorted view of IBM. But yeah, there's a reason why they've done so well for so long. And yeah, I mean, you spent close to nine years there ending up as, uh, or ended up kind of managing a team of, of developer advocates. Um, what, what does a developer advocate look like? Like, what, what is that job? And, and obviously you were managing those people. So yeah,
1: from that uh, cloud kind of DevOps architecture role, I I realized that I like designing solutions and helping customers with things. But the bit I enjoyed the most was actually like, you know, sitting in a room with a bunch of developers, helping them get hands on with the tools, you know, teaching them how to solve problems for themselves. And I I didn't even realize it was a thing, right? But turns out that's actually a a pretty good career path and, and a job at lots of companies to do that. And, and that's typically yeah, called developer advocacy. Some companies call it developer evangelism. Uh, a slightly more generic term might be developer relations, right? And that's what you know. I've been brought in at Selden to do. So within IBM, I moved into that role, and uh, you know, was very much yet yeah, promoting best practices for serverless, for you know, containerization, for using Kubernetes on cloud. Um, and that was really cool. It meant I didn't have to do any of the kind of boring account management and handling relationships and you know dealing with salespeople and stuff like that and i could just go out and talk about cool tech and get people excited about it it's a hard one to describe right because it covers you know not just the promotion of technology you know particularly open source but you're kind of managing communities of developers you're very much the voice of developers both inside and out so you know here at selden for example uh, we have a, a huge community of open source users. Right, my job is to is to talk to them to understand, you know, what do they like, what do they not like, feed that back to product managers, to the tech team, to you know, to improve things for them. And then equally, you know, internally, right, when we've got new things that we want to release or we want to test out, um, you know, promote that to people, gather feedback, and so on. So it's like like an intermediary role in between everything, and and you have to have a good understanding of the tech too.
0: Yeah, you're like a mega technical business analyst, right?
1: Like yeah, in, in a way where you're like
0: you're bridging a gap between two parties, and often that role sits with someone that isn't necessarily technical, but they know enough about it. But in the developer advocacy space, like you have to be technical. because you have to you have to kind of keep up to date. So a lot of similar skills, but yeah, the, the fact that you will always be kind of close to the tools, if you like. Yeah, for sure. So I I use like marketing as an example,
1: right? And that, you know, if you're Coca-Cola, right, your marketing team don't actually need to know all the details of, you know, how Coca-Cola is made, right? The the technical underlying stuff, because people just buy Coke and drink it, right? And so, and, and everyone's heard of it, everyone knows what it is. It doesn't require like, you know, some sort of onboarding and education in order to be able to to drink a bottle of coke (laughs) Um, so it's so they don't need someone like me right but when you're looking at developer tooling you know to most people even if they're technical they're going to look at it and go i don't really know what this does you know how do how do we make it easy for them to understand you know the concepts within the tool you know how it helps um how they can actually start using it you know so it's it's all that developer experience and then um also the fact that developers are slightly a bit weird right <laughs> you know traditional marketing things like you know it's a coca-cola marketing exec you might just push out advertising campaigns right that, that doesn't typically work on developers right they, they will have ad block they don't they you know they make their own decisions right they're incredibly autonomous so providing them a, a tool and the right messaging and something they can just play around with is a way better way of encouraging them to to adopt something
0: that you're building as a company. Yeah, no, and I think quite often technical people don't like being sold to. So the fact that you can sell, because obviously there is an element of that, but the fact that you can sell from a technical standpoint and say like, this tool could actually help you fix this problem because of this, and if I were you, I'd probably try it like this and then like you've got a bit of credibility from them like that you actually know what you're talking about you're not just trying to ram coca-cola down their throat to to continue that analogy yeah so that that's probably again where you couldn't do the role that you do without a really solid technical understanding like you would you would get found out quite quickly yeah you're, you're totally right like no one
1: wants to be sold to and inevitably right as part of being a company at some point we've got to make money we can't just keep giving stuff away for free uh much as i'd like to but yeah as you said you know that's why we create the open source stuff that's a ton of free value for people you know we don't expect everyone to to use that and then pay us eventually but some people turn around and go do you know what managing all of this running it ourselves you know building user interfaces that's too much effort we've got a whole load of value from you already right we'll we'll pay you a bit to to have your enterprise product right and that's That's typically like the route to onboard people. But um, the great thing is that in my robot, I don't particularly have to care about any of that stuff, you know, the revenue and the sales figures and so on. Um, I just chat to developers about techie stuff.
0: It's interesting though as well, because it's almost like sometimes we shy away from like the money side of a business. And actually when I started with Fuzzy Labs, I said to Tom, like, how do all these like cool open source tools like Seldon and ZenML and a few others, how do they... Make money, and he was like, "Well, typically, open source is you build up a product, you get enough people to use it, and then you have an enterprise edition of it, and a few large customers will purchase it, and that in turn lets you keep doing the open source stuff. So, like, you need both; otherwise, the open source stuff won't exist. Um, so, that having an appreciation of the kind of monetary side of it is is actually quite important for people that are using the tool, right?" Yeah, for sure. So yeah, there's there's um yeah, either that way, which is is
1: what we're doing here at Seldon. Um I guess another route that people do is is they just build a purely open source thing, you know, give it away, but then they will run a managed service. Yeah. And so what you're selling at that point is you're saying, you know, fine, you can run it yourself, but do you really want to spend like, you know, four hours a week maintaining and operating the, the cluster and doing the upgrades and you know checking that everything's highly available and so on. Maybe it's worth paying, uh, you know, 50 pounds a month or something to have another team take that away from you. Um, And and typically, you know, in those kind of scenarios, if you look at the kind of cost benefit analysis, it's almost never worth paying your own employee to do it. And it's much better to pay the the, uh, managed service provider.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense as well. And just lastly, in IBM, do you think spending the amount of time that you did there in a kind of, like a pretty massive organisation in, in the IT world, Did, do you think that gave you some kind of unique insight into large-scale technical projects, releasing new products to market, um, and has has helped in this kind of new startup world of Seldon? Yeah, for
1: sure. It's um, you know, obviously it's very different, right? Where you know at IBM, as I said, still the bulk of the the work is is kind of old school technology. They're, they're large-scale transformation projects. Whereas, you know, here at Selden, it's the you know, absolute bleeding edge of, you know, MLOps, which is at the forefront of machine learning, which is at the forefront of data science, which is at the forefront of other technology fields, right? So, um, you know, you, you, you couldn't be further down the technical rabbit hole. But yeah, it, it, it definitely does because, you know, at a startup, right, everyone does a bit of everything. And my job is developer relations, but, you know, I'm helping with product roadmaps, just defining sp- pricing strategies. Um, you know, helping out with customers where it's needed. Um, all that experience I have with knowing how these large enterprises operate is really valuable because typically what we're seeing now is actually those huge enterprises are approaching us and saying, you know, we want to use Seldon, um, you know, how, how can we make that happen? And, And I'm able to share all my experiences with, you know, working with very slow moving organizations and so on to, to help us grow as a company.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like having the insight into who a decision maker might be, how long a process might take. Because when you work in the startup world, and I've seen it, the, rec- the recruitment company I worked for at Cathcart, we were relatively small in terms of headcount and we worked with small companies and we would get frustrated with large companies when they said, we need to recruit. And then they kind of expected it to take six months when it could have taken mm-hmm. a month. And then now at Fuzzy Labs, like we speak to a potential client and we're like, we're ready to go and like, get A solution ready, and then it's like months down the line of like getting the right person, getting it all signed off, and all these things. Like, your experience of IBM, where you can kind of navigate some of those issues, is probably super helpful in a startup where I'm sure everyone at Selden is just like running 100 miles an hour all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that, but uh, you know, that's kind of why it's a fun place to work. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and I think I suppose you do need a mix, but. I've just been so used to the kind of fast-paced element of it that I I find it strange when companies take ages to make decisions um, when I feel like it doesn't always need that. Um, So, yeah, I think the startup world definitely is interesting because it's the opposite of that. So, yeah, we said already, but you kind of joined them, I think, coming up a year ago pretty much, Um, maybe even a year by the time this goes out. But, yeah, head of developer relations, similar to the role you explained at IBM in terms of, like, yeah, you get to champion... The Seldon Technology Suite, kind of internally and externally.
1: Yeah, but I guess you know the difference here is that so at IBM it was like fairly established. You know, we had teams around the world, we had uh, you know subject matter experts on on each individual area of technology. Whereas here, right, you know, I'm I'm the only person, so I've I've been brought in to to grow this developer relations team from scratch. So it's fun in a lot of ways. It means I get to define the strategy, I get to hire the right people, um, I get to do absolutely everything my own way and in the way that, you know, a lot of which ways that I saw at IBM and wished I could change but wasn't able to because it was, you know, big, as we said, right, big company, gated processes, etc. Yeah. But, of course, the downside is is that, you know, I have to do everything, right? And there's a lot of stuff to do. So, you know, the, the documentation needs work. Um, I've been trying to work on that when I can but I'm also trying to you know, put out blogs, uh, record podcasts, speak at conferences, um, you know, build integrations with other tools, uh, do product roadmap, manage a community, run meetups. You know, there's a thousand different things on all at once,
0: right? And that's you know, why it's both fun, but also hard work. Yeah, no, you're a very busy man. And was there a particular reason that seldom was the right move? Like, did, they, like, did you see the, the team and the company and think, I want to work there or was there a few things on the table and, and they won out or how did that kind of, how did you come to joining Seldon? They were really like in the sweet spot for
1: me in that. So I, having worked in kind of cloud architecture and done a lot of, you know, even my developer advocacy stuff at IBM was mostly around containerization, DevOps, CICD, that kind of stuff. I always had this you know, personal passion for machine learning. And, you know, when I had downtime, we'd just, you know, build a new tutorial or, um, you know, run through a new piece of learning online or just try and build some cool project as a, as a little bit of fun on the side. And I knew that, like, I wanted to move my career in that direction. Selden was perfect for a number of reasons, right? Firstly, the, the technology is, is a blend of, uh, you know, the cloud-native containerization world and machine learning, right? So I already have a, a ton of skills I can bring over and use technically. Um, sec- secondly, they were based in London, so you know you said was i looking at other things yeah absolutely you know speaking with other machine learning startups and other interesting players in the ai space but a lot of them were you know us-based and you know, particularly west coast type things where i realized i would i'd be working till you know 10 11 o'clock every night and just would never see my family so uh, that wasn't going to work out and then yeah i i spoke to, spoke to some of the team got really good feeling from them you know they have. As I said, an office based in London makes it easy for me. I live here, and, uh, and and above all, like everyone I spoke to seemed incredibly like smart and switched on. You know, there's there was never that person you spoke to and thought, oh, I don't really know what they do or like, oh, do they really get how this works? Kind of thing. Yeah, that that was what really excited me. It was like this this is a company that can grow fast, and and I can be a piece of it.
0: Nice. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and and you're right. That kind of sweet spot part is really interesting. Um, Seldon seemed to be, I mean, I'm only a few weeks into the MLOps journey, but Seldon seemed to be at the kind of forefront of kind of the MLOps space in terms of kind of the tooling, but also the community side and the event side. Do you think from a a kind of tooling point of view, was it a mixture of kind of the right product or products at the right time? um, or, Or has there been a real kind of push to be very well known for the things that you're very good at? I think it's a combination of both. So, y-
1: yes, I'd, I'd agree with, with very much, you know, seen as a leader now, particularly in the, the model deployment and model serving space. That is probably for two reasons, right? Firstly, we, we built some really good technology and uh, and ultimately no one's going to use something if, you know, you can have all the marketing and all the awareness in the world. But if people try it out and play with it and it disappoints them, they're just going to go away and not keep using it. So, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing. But then, you know, even before I joined, right, the, the tech team here did a fantastic job of uh, evangelizing about it. You know, they would go and speak at conferences, um, you know, get into developer communities and just do it in their spare time um, because they really believe in the open source projects that we're working on. Um, and I think that helped gain early adoption. And since then, it's, you know, it's then a name that's on the tip of everyone's tongue. You know, if, if I ask you, you know, what do you guys consider for... Model deployment, right? You guys are going to say Seldon because you've heard of us and you've used some of our technology before, yeah. And and I think from there, it, you know, it spreads, right? So we just have to keep keep building the best tech and, and staying
0: ahead. Yeah, no, it's, and and I mean, yeah, you mentioned about speaking at conferences, and I know community is a big part of your role and a big part of Seldon in <laughs> general. Again, was that outside of the people doing it in their own time and really believing in it? But part of the kind of appeal for you to come in was it that community? Was that quite it was kind of at the heart of what Seldon did in a lot of ways, and it allows you to kind of keep doing that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, um you know, yeah, I mentioned a bunch of
1: things that made Seldon a sweet spot, but probably didn't highlight the fact that you know it's open source technology. I've always been a huge fan of it. You know, as a big fan of the acquisition we had at IBM when we bought Red Hat. You know, all the things I've advocated for. You know, things like OpenWisk, Cloud Foundry, Kubernetes, these are all open cloud technologies and Seldon get that, right? You know, Seldon Core is, is a hugely adopted open source project now and the whole tech team buy into that philosophy. So that was, yeah, definitely a, a huge part of it. And then also the, you know, the community that's built up around it, I could see was like, was there, but it needs nurturing. And so I knew there were a lot of things I could do to come in and help you know, grow the community, get people interacting with each other, um, help people find the right resources, you know, build content that people need. So, yeah, all of that really excited me.
0: Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, obviously the big kind of, I think we described it earlier on a call that our kind of one non-negotiable when we're talking about tooling for MLOps is the open source part. Like, we, we can talk about different cloud providers, we can talk about different, needs and wants of people kind of within the space. But the the thing we won't budge on is kind of using open source tooling. Um, And I know Matt and our team spent a long time kind of curating a list of open source tools and trying to cut through the ones that kind of pretend to be. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously like Selden and a few others are, they're just so obviously committed to that world that yeah, I can see from your point of view why that would be kind of a big, big appeal. And it seems like, the community of open source enthusiasts is way more engaged than people that really follow like, a product or a platform. Like, the, the open source part seems to pull people in a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it makes it much
1: easier to collaborate with other people. You know, so we haven't really talked very much about the kind of MLOps lifecycle. But the way I like to position Selden is I say that we do the last mile of machine learning. We don't do any training. We don't do data versioning, all these other kind of things earlier on in, the, in that life cycle. But once you have a trained model, you know, something that's ready to predict stuff, we help you get it into production, get value out of it, scale it up to, to thousands or millions of users, um, and monitor it and make sure it doesn't fail. So that's, that's basically like what we do as a company. And so you know, inevitably, right, there are lots of touch points with other tools along that. Lifecycle, um, you know there are tons of different training frameworks, there are different versioning tools, different ways of storing your models, and yeah, like you said, the, the open source tools are the ones who reach out to us and they say, "Hey, can we build an integration with you guys?" You know you also have open source stuff, we can see the source code, we know that it technically wouldn't be too difficult It, it just makes everything more open in in that space,
0: and some of those collaborations are probably you know one of the things I enjoy most about my job yeah no it's really good and i mean i know from even the first few meetings that i've been involved in in the first couple of weeks here that last mile is the is the big pain point for a lot of kind of our customers where it's like they can see the value of a lot of the mlops lifecycle but when we say like what's the big what's the big thing holding you back and they're like deployment like we've got this we've got this cobbled together solution we have one model in production or maybe close to production but we can already see it's going to be a nightmare like as we scale mm. and grow and acquire more customers and have more complicated data sets and all these different things and like they've just got one data scientist trying their best on a single machine like it's just it's not scalable right and yeah the fact that you guys have absolutely like nailed that part of the market makes a lot of sense
1: yeah i don't i don't know if you
0: um have have seen a chap called Andy McMahon speak before? Yes, Andy's um, been on the podcast. He's a, a, a fellow it, a fellow Scotsman, so um, I know Andy relatively well. Oh, perfect! Then you're going to enjoy this. Then, so I I think he he still has the
1: the best description of ML ops that I've heard, right? And and that's because he breaks down ML engineering as a so you know he defines ML engine, You've probably if he's already been on the podcast, he's probably given you this description better than I will already. Yeah, he he breaks down ML engineering as that process of getting, you know, building, training, the model, everything up to getting it deployed and then trying to monitor it. That's machine learning engineering. But taking that whole process and making it repeatable and reusable and automated, that's MLOps, right? Because ML engineering only scales with people, whereas MLOps, in theory, you know, only scales with infrastructure and therefore can be infinite. Right. You, you can't get 1,000 models into production in a timely manner using just your ML engineering tools, right? In, unless you've got 1,000 ML engineers. And I'm pretty sure that nobody does because everyone's hiring and they don't seem to be out there.
0: Yeah, and and if you did, you'd have to have some deep pockets if they were any good. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that is a good way of like breaking that part up. And I'm sure Andy will be buzzing that he got to mention. And yeah, the, actually, the next part I was going to talk about, and we've already touched on this, but obviously MLOps is kind of gaining I mean seldon has been around for a while now, actually, like in terms mm. of like years that they've been going. But MLOps is kind of fairly new in terms of the phrase. Like I think some people have been some people use the term like full stack data science and other other things have been going around. But the, the kind of more accepted term of MLOps is fairly new. But it looks like, especially now that I'm kind of more embedded in this world, it's only gonna get bigger and more critical the more that companies are trying to adopt any sort of ML, any sort of AI into their product. And obviously there's more and more companies now that are actually kind of being led by data. So they're gonna need they're gonna need this kind of process and tooling just to get it right. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely becoming a buzzword.
1: Uh, and I actually think, you know, my maybe unpopular opinion here is that I think that's a good thing. Uh, whilst I hate a lot of buzzwords, they they raise awareness enormously of something that you know previously maybe people didn't know about. And so the more we call it MLOps or you know standardize on that or some other term, the more people know what we're talking about when we mention it. Yeah. Right. If if someone says uh you know full stack data science engineering and I have to go, hang on, what does you know, what does that mean? And, and, and if it doesn't mean anything to me, like I don't even know what the content's going to be underneath that. Yeah. Um. I guess a a good analogy of this would be like, you know, agile, right? In software development, everyone's agile now. <laughs> even if, you know, actually a lot of people aren't. Right? They call themselves agile and they do a, a half baked Scrum at the beginning of every day, and uh, people stand up and and do it all totally wrong. Um. But.
0: It's but, still but it's like better agile isn't it like the, yeah like the,
1: it's still better than what they were doing before right where nobody spoke to anyone and you know <laughs> the requirements were gathered by a different person and the testing was done after the whole thing had been built and it never got given to a user until you know 2 years after the requirements were defined <laughs> it's it's still a step forward even if people do it wrong yeah so yeah driving awareness of it is only a good thing, even if
0: it has a buzzword around it. It's funny though, because MLOps is a little bit buzzwordy, right? And I think people would agree. But people probably and you you are you might have missed this kind of phase of the hype cycle with DevOps, but people probably said this about DevOps 10, 15 years ago. Like it's just a bit of hype, like we're never gonna do that, we're never like we're not gonna need this. And now, generally speaking, you probably wouldn't set up a software engineering team or kind of a new kind of product without at least thinking about devops you might not necessarily call it that or have a team dedicated to it but there'll be certain principles in there
1: yeah i think um the good thing we have as well is that we get to learn from the way that devops evolved yeah so when it initially started out very much like the sales pitch was well we you don't need operations anymore right get rid of everyone you know all your sys admins your site reliability engineers you won't need any of those because developers can just push everything to production themselves right and that's that's the kind of promise and what happened over time is people realized yeah okay maybe we don't need as many because we're not manually monitoring stuff and we can automate a lot of things and centralize things but we need people to build and deliver those processes right that repeatable automated process requires a really techie skill set and someone with experience and who can monitor it and debug it and make sure it works over and over and over again and and that gave you know rise to the the devops engineer which now is like a totally established title right and uh you know again companies are still struggling to hire for that right yeah and and that's i think you know what we're seeing happen quicker in mlops is that you know the the machine learning engineer role kind of came around as like you know, the data scientist who actually knew how to deploy stuff. Yeah. Um. And now, you know, we're seeing job titles out there saying we're hiring an MLOps engineer.
0: Yeah. You know, someone
1: whose sole job is to build those repeatable machine learning pipelines and processes to allow our data scientists to get stuff done
0: quickly. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing for me when I've been speaking to a lot of data scientists over the last couple of years is, like, they were hired to do something, and a bit like with software engineers been able to deploy stuff. Like, yes, they could, and data scientist or some data scientists probably could make a good stab at like a fairly decent ML stack, but they weren't really hired to do that. And like if you're if the thing you're really interested in is building mm-hmm. models and experimenting loads, doing loads of research and development, kind of getting bogged down in product engineering and kind of software engineering in general, it's not really like you can see why people would get jaded by that. Whereas if yep. on the flip side you're an established data scientist coming into a team, um, say Andy McMahon's team, for example, because I know that they've got a really good setup there, and you've got all these MLOps principles in place, all this good tooling in place, you will enjoy your job more because they've thought about that part of it. So that, I think that's one of the angles that it will end up becoming is like, it will become a selling point if you've got a solid kind of MLOps infrastructure in place. Like Data scientists will want to work with you yeah yeah exactly it's you know it's it's about unlocking people
1: to to do the bit of their job that they're best at and they enjoy the most um and you know not all di- data scientists will be the same on that you know some love data engineering and you know feature engineering others love tweaking hyperparameters on models and so on um you know the best team you can build is is one that has people who love doing bits
0: all of those bits of the life cycle yeah do you guys have conversations with customers and I wonder if this will become more apparent in the next couple of years but do you guys have conversations with people where they want to adopt Seldon and MLOps straight away like they've not even really started building models yet but they want the infrastructure in place like is that is that almost too like utopian almost like or or does that happen I, I think that probably is for us but then
1: that's maybe within the context of the kind of company that speaks to us so because seldon deploys stuff on top of kubernetes and helps you do things at scale we're already narrowing our focus down to you know potentially you know i don't know let's say the world's top 1000 companies right yeah. because if you're outside of that maybe you're not you know you might be building machine learning models but you're probably not building tens or hundreds or thousands right and you know, some of our customers have tens of thousands of machine learning models and they will you know train and deploy those all within a week right that's you know never going to happen if you're a very small company with 10 employees and one data scientist yeah so it's fairly self selective and i'd say you know for us that's that's definitely not the case you know but what we do see is people have hired a team of data scientists they've started building models they've tested them all in a jupyter notebook and they go hey look we can accurately forecast your sales for next quarter And now the company are like, great, can you accurately forecast our sales every day and do that repeatably on, you know, retrain on every piece of data from each day and tell us how we're going to do the next day and so on. And that process is the bit where they're like, oh, I don't know, because we don't understand the the deployment challenges
0: and how to monitor stuff and so on. And and that's typically where we start engaging with people. Yeah, no, it was was interesting. I saw on LinkedIn recently where someone said like, what's the biggest misconception of MLOps or something like that. And somebody had commented saying like, that you need to wait to get that kind of infrastructure in place. Whereas if you can get best practice to some degree in earlier, then you won't face a lot of the challenges that these teams that have a few models or they've got that kind of, we did have this thing running, but the data scientist left and it was kind of all in his head slash their machine so like you can avoid some of these pitfalls by looking at mlops earlier and i wonder if that's where some of the market will go a little bit like devops again where people would hmm. maybe just go if they're setting something up they'd be like right well we need to think about how this is going to scale
1: yeah i, I think that will happen as individuals move from experienced companies to to newer ones yeah so um you know if if I start a company tomorrow, right, and we need to do some machine learning, let's say I steal the machine learning engineer from Netflix, right, and they come and work for us. They, they know that these are things they're going to have to adopt eventually. Mm. You know, they're going to need repeatable processes. They know how to version data, et cetera. So they're probably going to set them up from scratch. And even if we bring new junior data scientists into the team... Part of that will be educating them on, you know, why we need those things, why that's important and why we've got it in place early on. So uh, over time, that will dissipate around, you know, from the kind of handful of companies who, and let's be honest, like no one's really doing MLOps amazingly well yet. Yeah, you know, there are people who are way better than everyone else, <laughs> um, but there's definitely not like
0: a, you know, defined best practice yet. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a good point. People who've done it at larger companies that will inevitably end up at startups or starting their own thing, like that's where you'll start, yeah, seeing a bit of a trickle-down effect, um, which will be interesting, actually. And then the last thing we always touch on on the show is around kind of growing, leading, managing teams. Um, I know you did a bit of that at IBM, and, and obviously you've mentioned being able to kind of shape and grow a team at Selden as well. Is there anything that you have kind of learned along the way of kind of growing and building teams that, that stood you in really good stead or anything you've learned recently at Seldon that kind of has helped? Yeah, two two things. So uh the first is that, you know, when I first took on
1: managing other people, nobody had prepared me for quite how much of a a parent role you're taking on. <laughs> like yeah, I, I particularly in my case, because I was you know, I had colleagues who were my colleagues and then I moved up to manage them, which so I wanted to keep that whole like, you know, friendly, um, you know, banter going around the office, you know, kind of whip ears type thing. Yeah. Um but at the same time, you know, people pour their hearts out to you and they have emotional problems they expect you to help them with, and you realize that actually everyone is just a person right you know their their work massively overlaps with their home life and so on, and everything's intertwined and your job as a manager is is to try and help unpick that um and and make sure that they're doing well you know both outside of the office as well as in so that was something I, I had to learn very fast and thankfully I had it. you know bunch of really good mentors who helped me through that and then I would say almost the other way around I, it was that like two years ago or nearly two years ago I became a dad so I actually kind of have been able to do it the other way around I've taken my managerial skills and now
0: can apply them to my own child which uh he, he will not thank me for when he grows up and listens to this <laughs> are you doing like monthly reviews with your son like see what you can get better at what you can focus on for the month ahead? <laughs> Yeah, I've put him on a personal improvement plan already.
1: <laughs> do like a daily stand-up with your toddler. Yeah, he's he, he's going to have to pass probation at three years. We'll see how he gets on. It'd be a strange sacking to do. It's like, just, sorry,
0: <laughs> just have to go, just to leave.
1: Yeah, that's um, it. Most
0: people get till 18, you get till three. <laughs> <laughs> that's so much pressure. Poor lad. Um, yeah, no, it's a really good point. And, and it is probably the thing where you're managing people that you kind of forget that there's overlap and especially now actually with people remote working and what the kind of pandemic did for people that it it does become more difficult um, and things start overlapping a little bit more. So, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I've done the whole pandemic. So my daughter's one next week. And so I've had like an entire pregnancy and pandemic and sorry, an entire pregnancy and an entire year of her life where I've just been around. So Mm. that's like impacted my work life massively in a positive way um so yeah th- these things are always it's worth considering the home aspect of it it's not all just especially in your line of work it's not all just come in and build tech like there's there's other parts to it yeah yeah for sure and where uh have you got anything coming up any conferences any speaking events that uh are worth shouting about for people to go and find and i can link them when we post it um yeah for sure so uh Uh, I guess for anyone around in London,
1: I actually run a a community called MLOps London. So, you know, come along. We do talks at that. Um, You know, Matt from Fuzzy Labs has already spoken. um, His recording's on YouTube if you want to go and check it out. But yeah, we we run those every two months. um, And it's, you know, drinks and networking, a bit of food, and then a couple of talks, and then people can just hang out afterwards. Um, A great way to meet other data scientists and engineers and so on. In terms of the conferences, I've got KubeCon coming up um end of may which will be really exciting uh, it's my f- first time speaking at kubecon uh, and i'm doing it alongside a, a a big open source user of ours who do f- like food delivery within europe which is really cool is that the one that's in seville
0: yes yeah that's right oh no valencia valencia sorry valencia yeah i saw that uh like maybe yesterday and i was like i want to try and pitch to go to that one just because it's in spain it looks cool
1: yeah it should be nice end of may in valencia i think uh I'm hoping it'll be sort of, you know, high 20 degrees. I'll sit out with some sangria in the evening when I finish watching
0: some really good talks. That's definitely worse places to be. Uh, that's cool. So, you know, we'll definitely link that. All right, nice one. Well, thank you so much for joining. I really do appreciate the time. And it'll be really cool to see how Selden keep, keep progressing. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's been really good fun to be on here.